Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. It was not the midterm election that many expected. At the national level, Democrats outran their poll numbers and a hypothesized red wave a la 2010 never materialized. But our local politics don't track that red-blue pattern. Perhaps the biggest races were for new mayors in San Jose and Oakland, but both San Francisco and Alameda counties had district attorneys races too after the hotly contested recall in the city earlier this year. There were also a variety of city-level measures intended to address some of our housing and quality of life problems. And wow, did you see the countless supporters of car-free JFK and Golden Gate Park celebrating their big wins in San Francisco. We're going to talk about all of that and more. It's all coming up after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is a special edition of the show. We'll be looking at the election over the next two hours. Here at 9 a.m., we're going to talk local races, measures, a few state props. Then at 10 a.m. with Rachel Myro, we'll shift the focus to all of California and the nation. Joining me this morning, we've got Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent with KQED and co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown Show. Welcome, Marisa. Hey, Alexis. And, of course, we've got Guy Marzarati, reporter and producer with KQED's politics and government desk. Welcome, Guy. Hey, good morning. And we've also got Darwin Bond-Graham, news editor for Oakland Side. Welcome, Darwin. All right, Guy, let's start with you. Um, We've got the big mayor's race in San Jose. Can you give us, I know it's still undecided. I just heard Brian Watt uh, in the newscast. Um, But where do we stand on that and how's it looking? Well, it's looking pretty good for Matt Mahan. He's the uh, first-term city council member who's taking on County Supervisor Cindy Chavez. 
Mayhan leads right now by about four percentage points. I think a little little less than, than 5,000 votes. Um, but he, he's in, been in good position basically ever since after polls closed. The first results that we got last night, the ballots cast before Election Day, were really close, basically a statistical tie. But then throughout the night, uh, as in-person votes came in, Mayhan gained more and more ground. Just judging by kind of the tenor of their comments at Election Night events last night, Cindy Chavez talking to our colleague Carlos Cabrera Loma Lee was already kind of talking about moral victories. And I think the sense (laughs) that I got from there was the momentum, at least in results coming in, seems to be uh, with Mahan, which would be, you know, pretty incredible for a guy who just took office, uh, got his first political job two years ago on the city council. Now it's going to be, you know, the the top position in the 10th largest city in the country. Hmm. Do you think it says anything about this election that, I mean, she did rack up uh, a lot of endorsements from progressive groups down there. Um, he had the Licardo kind of faction behind him. Is this sort of a moderate versus left wing of the Democratic Party kind of race? Yeah, I mean, I think you can frame it in terms of that more business versus, uh, you know, labor. I, I will say, you know, no matter where the result turns out to be, this race was definitely took place in kind of the terms that Matt Mahan wanted to dictate it. It was the conversation, the narrative was always about, you know, change and a referendum on Cindy Chavez's record, both as a county supervisor and in her years on the city council. And Chavez, you know, never really went on the offensive against Mahan. He's only been on the council two years, but there are votes that you can point to where he's kind of out of step with the promises he's making for the city going forward. Chavez seemed reluctant at times to do that. Um, her attacks were more towards Sam Licardo, the current mayor, saying that she would be bring a departure from Licardo, particularly around police staffing. Um, and so in a race that seemed to be about change in which both candidates were talking about change, that's definitely more of a comfort zone for someone like Mahan, who is, you know, kind of new to politics. But you saw this in San Jose. You saw it also in Oakland, this idea of candidates being supported by the outgoing mayor, still finding a way to brand themselves as something different. Hmm. You know, Maurice Lagos, um, London Breed was not on the ballot um, this year, but there but were. But wasn't a- she, though? Yeah. But wasn't she? <laughs> exactly. Take it away. Yeah. Yeah, no, she had a great night. And actually, I think, you know, to Guy's point, a night that sort of marks a departure, I think, from, well, in two ways. One is that, yes, I think if you're going to sort of talk about the traditional progressive versus moderate split, moderates in San Francisco also had a far better night. Um, but I actually think it's a little more nuanced than that. And what's impressive for from the perspective of the mayor, we can get into the nuance once in a second, is that this is a city that has not always been super kind, even to popular mayors, about their appointees, right? Mm -hmm. We have seen, dating back to when I started covering the city and Gavin Newsom was mayor, um, often when a position comes open and somebody gets appointed to it, even if the mayor is very popular, their candidate does not win. And that was not the case last night. It's looking like Matt Dorsey's going to win in District 6. Uh, her school board appointees are all doing very well. Uh, some of the ballot measures she really put uh, her support behind or against are you know, going the way right. that the mayor wanted. Um, and so I think when you kind of take that all together, it's like, pretty remarkable. I guess the only thing she lost on was moving the election uh, into presidential years, which is a sort of funny one because she's actually getting a free year as mayor. She's going to have a five-year term now. 
What do we make of that? I mean, do we just think that Mayor Breed, that city residents think she's doing a great job? Is it sort of like that she uh, has just done a good job politicking? Like, what what, what do you yeah, give us some analysis? I mean, I guess I, I would... Oh, we didn't even mention the DA, of course, Brooke Jenkins. Right. That's, yeah. a, that's yeah. the biggest one. You know, I don't know. It's hard to say. I, I saw some uh, tracking this summer that, you know, was internal to polls, so take it with a grain of salt, but often they're pretty accurate. Um, and her favorables were pretty evenly split in the city, so I don't know if this was a referendum on breed or if she's just has her finger on the pulse of where the city is right now. I, I would think it's more the latter. I think that if you look at what happened with a school board recall, with a DA recall here, if you look at the kind of bigger shift I know we're going to talk about around housing policy and the conversation mm-hmm. in the state, I just think that a lot of the positions that she's put herself in and, and including kind of the public safety questions coming out of the pandemic when we've had such weird kind of crime patterns, mm-hmm. um, I, I think, you know, she read the tea leaves correctly. And I think that it wasn't it's not like you saw London breed on a bunch of ads this year. Right. It was more right. behind the scenes. And maybe that was a good political yeah. decision. Yeah. Just so everyone knows, we will run through uh, some of those di- district uh, mm-hmm. races later. Um, Darwin Bond Graham, uh, longtime coverer of Oakland, now news editor at Oakland Side. Um, talk to us about the mayor's race in Oakland, which appears to be just about over. Uh, well, it's it's not just about over. It's actually what's really interesting about the mayor's race in Oakland is um, very few ballots have actually been counted so far. So oh, just, just to give some perspective here in the 2018 mayor's race, which is pro- probably like the best comparison here uh, because that, you know, there was a midterm and there was a, a mayoral election in the city. Um, so in terms of turnout, there were 158,000 approximately um, 158,000 voters who voted for mayor in Oakland. Um, so far, we've only seen about, uh, what is it, 35,000, uh, 38,000 oh. ballots counted. So there's a lot of ballots probably still to be counted in the mayor's race. That said, I mean, you know, the results that we've got are like, a, um, you know, maybe best seen as like a, a, a good sampling of where things might head. And so in that, uh, in that respect, Lauren Taylor um, has a pretty significant lead in the first round of voting. And there's 10, 10 candidates in this mayor's race, right? So it's, it is going to come down to rank, a ranked choice runoff. But Lauren Taylor's got about 34% of the vote. Uh, Shane Tao, another council member, 28%. De La Fuente, uh, former council member, he's at about 13%. Um, this race is going to come down to, uh, the, the winner of this race is going to be picked in terms of um, their popularity uh, as as voters' second choice, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be that ranked choice runoff, and it's going to be either probably Lauren Taylor or Shang Tao in the end, and it's going to be whichever one of them could convince voters to put them number two or number three on the ballot. Yeah. You know, one of the interesting things, I was looking, going through the different rounds of ranked choice voting, you know, where as each candidate kind of gets eliminated, their votes get thrown to the next person or or, or not. And... It was I, I expected each candidate to have like a stronger break in the different directions. It kind of seemed like in a lot of cases, you know, people's votes for, say, Greg Hodge were just kind of sprayed to the other candidates after that. Um, but it does. Do you see patterns in that rank choice like that? De La Fuente's people will be most likely to go to Lauren Taylor or something like that. I do. Yeah. If you know, again, this is very few ballots, but. 
if this sample holds when we when we have all the ballots counted in, in a few days or maybe a week, um, what the pattern I'm seeing is that Lauren Taylor is popular. He's the number two guy across a lot of candidates, and some of it's surprising. So, like you know, the first the first several uh, the, the lowest vote getters here: uh, Peter Liu, Ty, uh, Tyrone Jordan, John Raymond, uh, Seneca Scott. People who got very few votes in the mayor's race. When their ballots are um, retabulated and given to the other candidates in ranked choice, it's it's a bit scattershot. It's a bit random. But once you get to Greg Hodge, what's really interesting is 31% of uh, these votes uh, end up going from Greg, uh, Greg Hodge's leftover votes end up going to Lauren Taylor. That's the highest of any candidate. Shane Tao only gets about 22% mm-hmm. of Hodge's votes. And I think that's going to surprise a lot of people because Hodge ran as a a very strong progressive. And there were some groups, there were some progressive groups out there that were campaigning on a strategy of telling voters, you know, if you're going to vote for Hodge, please put Shang Tao number two on your ballot. Um, same thing for um, uh, uh, city council member Treva Reed, when she's eliminated uh, in, in, in uh, ranked choice voting, 43% of her votes go to Taylor, only 26% to Tao. Um, when victory is eliminated, uh, mo- about 62% of her votes go to Tao, uh, but it looks like in the final round, De La Fuente is kind of a kingmaker. Uh, 57% of his votes go to Taylor. So interesting. And when do we, you said a few days to a week before all the ballots are counted, but when do you think we might know, like, okay, with, with confidence, all right, it's it's Lauren Taylor or it's uh, Shang Tao? I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not like a, uh, an election statistician guy, but you know, once you get up towards, <laughs> come, on, like, you've been, Darwin. come on, Darwin, don't sell yourself short. You've been covering this for a long time. Yeah, I know. But what, once you get up to like, you know, half the vote, um, and if, if, you know, things aren't shifting too much, I mean, they say that late voters tend to be, you know, maybe younger, a little bit more progressive. Um, I don't, I think if, if we get toward half the vote and we don't see things like swinging significantly in that direction, you know, people start might calling the races. My news organization doesn't doesn't uh, try to call races. We just report on when the candidates yeah. declare victory and all that. Yeah. Uh, Marisa, do you have any uh, quick thoughts on that Oakland mayor's race? I mean, it's interesting if you step back and think about that and then what we just talked about with both San Jose and San Francisco, just in the sense that in the spring, it really felt like, especially locally, there was this anti-incumbency sort of vibe in the air. And like all of these are the folks that have been endorsed by the incumbents, you know, so they're new, but they're not that new. Yeah. We're talking about Bay Area election results with Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent with KQED, Guy Marzarati, reporter and producer with KQED's California Politics and Government Desk, and Darwin Bond-Graham, news editor with Oakland Side. We'd love to hear from you. What race were you watching the most closely? What results have have surprised you? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. We're going to talk housing. After the break, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQD Forum, and the email is forum at kqd.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence. 
June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are talking about Bay Area election results. It's a big area, nine counties, lots of races. Here to help us sort through everything, we've got Marisa Lagos of KQED, of course, as well as KQED's Guy Marzarati and Oakland Side's Darwin Bond-Graham. Uh, Guy, there are a lot of different kind of criminal justice issues or, or candidates who are on the ballot, including the sheriff's race in Santa Clara County. Can you uh, tell us how that one's going and maybe give us a little bit of the setup because that's a kind of pretty complex race down there. Right. I mean, this is happening uh, just days after Lori Smith, who's been the sheriff in Santa Clara County since the late 90s, resigned from that seat days before she was uh, convicted by um, on civil corruption charges uh, related to uh, both concealed weapons permits that her office had approved, some campaign finance uh, issues, and also the fact that she seemed to flaunt some of the oversight into investigations into the jails, which the sheriff runs in Santa Clara County. Uh, two candidates are on the ballot to replace her. Bob Johnson, who has been the uh, police chief in Menlo Park, most recently in Palo Alto, kind of ran as, you know, I'm coming from outside of this department to reform it. Kevin Jensen, very similar name, uh, was the other candidate. He worked for years in the sheriff's uh, office but said he was someone who stood up to Lori Smith. Right now, Johnson, that's the police chief, uh, leads by about two points, um, fairly close. But I think no matter who wins, this is going to be an office that's going to come with a lot of challenges, both given the lack of public trust in in Lori Smith towards the end of her tenure and also just the the reoccurring issues in Santa Clara County jails when it comes to treatment of of mentally ill inmates. Mm. Uh, Marisa, we also, you mentioned briefly, uh, Brooke Jenkins, people, uh, almost certainly remember, uh, <laughs> what's happening there, but, um, tell us, tell us a little bit about, you know, what's happened between the recall election and now, like, has, has anything changed and did voters even seem to be voting on the basis of the crime patterns of the city in this case or, or something else? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Brooke Jenkins definitely, I think, has been given a little bit of grace by the city uh, residents in terms of, you know, whether things are being turned around quickly. I mean, politically, it certainly seems from the outside like police have sort of stepped up their enforcement. And certainly both they and Brooke Jenkins have been very vocal when there are arrests or charges, especially in high profile cases. Um, I would say that, you know, in general, that's been like probably the message a lot of residents have gotten, voters have gotten, although there have been a little, a couple kerfuffles, including uh, some recent questions um, where it became clear uh, that Brooke, well, basically uh, Joe Eskenazi over at um, Mission Local broke a story showing that Brooke had emailed Don Dubain, another former prosecutor, now 
back in the office with her who ran the recall, essentially giving them him details uh, on a case they were not working on um, that was really used against Chase Boudin in the recall. And so questions over whether that was legal, because if you are a law enforcement officer, you are not supposed to have access to things like rap sheets unless you're actually working on a case. And certainly you're not allowed to send them to personal email addresses. Um, but all that said, Alexis, it doesn't seem like voters really cared. Um She's leading in the third round. Actually, I think there's a fourth round, but I'll check it. But, you know, well over 55 percent um, to John Hamasaki's like 44 percent. And I think he you know, he's a former police commissioner, definitely a darling of the progressive left. But I, I do think that just the runway was so short for this race. She had so much more name ID. Um, and I think that, you know, he wasn't necessarily the strongest candidate. I mean, if people just recalled Boudin, at least the guy had been in the public defender's office before. Right. He was familiar uh, with the criminal justice system. Um, but I think, you know, this is also just a bigger, as we kind of touched on, pushback against some of the progressive sort of elements here in San Francisco, um, I think particularly around criminal justice and then certainly housing. Darwin Bondgram uh, over in Oakland, we also uh, had an Alameda County district attorney uh, race. What what happened there? Yeah, uh, just the scene set, you know, Alameda County's criminal justice system is significantly larger than San Francisco's and the Alameda County district attorney's office has traditionally played a leadership role in crafting criminal justice policies in the state. A lot of the past Alameda County DAs have led the, you know, California District Attorneys Association and done a lot of work in Sacramento. So the outcome in this race is, a, is going to be a really big deal. Um, right now, it looks like Terry Wiley, uh, he's a, a assistant DA um, endorsed by the outgoing District Attorney Nancy O'Malley. Uh, it looks like he's leading with about 52% of the vote over uh, Pamela Price. Uh, who ran on a uh, reform platform. She's a civil rights and uh, labor attorney. Um, Pamela Price had actually come out of the primary back in June. And remember, our, our county elections in Alameda County, we aren't ranked choice, unlike our city elections, a little confusing. So we had a primary back in June. Pamela Price came out of that actually in the lead. But it, it looks like what happened um, this time is Jimmy Wilson, who was also a deputy district attorney and ran in the June primary, picked up a lot of votes, came in third. Looks like maybe a lot of his voters mm. went more towards Terry Wiley and are giving him the edge in this general election. And Terry Wiley, you know, he's um, uh, he ran on some uh, reform uh, policies, uh, but he's, he's viewed um, sort of, you know, more as going to be like continuing uh, the policies um, the sort of approach to criminal justice that uh, Nancy O'Malley had. You know, one interesting thing about Wiley, right? I mean, he's been a uh, district attorney for 30, 30 some years, right? I mean, he was the one of the prosecutors uh, on the R- R- Riders case, right? Which I know that you've covered extensively. I mean, what can you tell us about Terry Wiley for people? You know, you mentioned this is like an important office, not just locally, but also, you know, for for policy across the state and maybe from the state to the nation. So, like, what what do you think? What are you expecting from him just as someone that you've kind of seen around? Yeah, I mean, one one important thing to say right off the bat is, you know, if Terry Wiley wins or if this, you know, race takes a wild turn and Pamela Price somehow um, gains, you know, uh, three, four points and wins. Uh, is Alameda County will have a black district attorney for the first time in its history. Every every district attorney in the county for its entire history has been a white man, except for Nancy O'Malley. Um, so now we'll have a black district attorney. 
uh, why, that's right. Wiley was uh, one of the prosecutors of the Riders, the uh, squad of Oakland, West Oakland cops who were accused of planting drugs on people and beating up suspects in 2000. That led to the Oakland Police Department's long-running reform effort. Um, that criminal prosecution actually um, wasn't successful. Uh, Wiley, you know, talked about that a lot on the campaign trail as one of his bona fides as to, like, you know, why he should be trusted to continue um you know, criminal justice reforms and, and prosecuting police officers uh, when they commit crimes. This is something Pamela Price actually ran on. It was a big part of her platform. She thinks that the district attorney's office uh, shouldn't be influenced by police unions, police uh, police spending, and that it should have a unit that um, vigorously prosecutes police officers uh, when they engage in misconduct. So Wiley is, Wiley is probably going to be a little bit more of like the traditional district attorney he's not going to shake things up as much there although he did he did commit himself to being a little bit more transparent around things like producing prosecution data and you know showing that the office is making progress on you know things like reducing racial inequities in the criminal justice system alexis also just to jump in you know i cover criminal justice more broadly so i'm not as like intimately familiar as this race as darwin but one thing that struck me is when i was doing a lot of reporting this year on uh, the victims movement and survivors, particularly black moms who have really stood up and, and been in favor of both criminal justice reform and more rights for survivors. Um, I saw him show up at a at a march they were doing to protest the unsolved murders in Oakland. And I don't know, I just I, I do think that it'll be interesting to see how different his tone is from Nancy O'Malley, because obviously he is, you know, kind of her handpicked successor. But I do think having a black man in that role and somebody who's been at least more willing, I think, to sort of reach out to those groups um, could just change, you know, the the, the tenor in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Let's uh, let's bring in some uh, callers, people with uh, questions about specific race. Ted in Oakland. Welcome. Oh, yeah. Hi. Uh, back in Oakland, I was wondering if uh, we can get some follow up on district races. Uh, council member positions in Oakland. I'm particularly interested in District 4. I think it was an interesting race. Yeah, uh, Darwin, you want to start off on that one? Sure, yeah. The city council district elections, um, again, not a lot of ballots counted, but right now it looks like in District 4, uh, Janani Ramakandran is leading with about 64% of the vote over Nina Joyner. Um, that's a pretty significant lead. It would be surprising if uh, Ramakandran didn't win that race. Uh, Nikki Fortunato-Bass, she's the current city council president from District 2. She has a strong lead over her challenger, Harold Lowe. Uh, She's got 60% of the vote so far. And District 6, four people were running. Uh, One of them appears to just kind of be dominating that race. Kevin Jenkins, he's got 67% 67% of the first round votes. And after the ranked choice runoff, he's got like 80, he wins with 80%. So he's looks like he's going to be the D6 yeah. rep. Let's uh, zoom out a tiny bit here to talk about how this election, at least via measures and other things, attempted to address uh, some of our housing. I'm going to throw this to the politics, KQD politics folks here. Do you think this election represents some kind of turning point in the way that the Bay Area voters have approached housing? I mean, I do think we've seen widespread support for different kind of housing approaches on the ballot uh, throughout the Bay Area. And it's something we've I mean, talked about a long time, this kind of state versus local push on housing development. 
there's definitely been a sea change in Sacramento, right, in terms of you know, more consensus around pushing cities to do more to build housing. It hasn't always trickled down to the local level, but we actually did see that happen last night. One of the measures I was most interested in following is Measure V in Menlo Park. This is something our colleague Aaron Baldessari reported extensively on, but it was a measure that basically would have made it harder to develop in single-family neighborhoods. Anytime a development would be proposed, it would have to go back before the voters, and it would kind of create this process that could mm-hmm. slow down uh, development there. And it got walloped. I mean, right now, 60% of voters there are opposing Measure V. I think there was a, a real great effort on the part of the uh, opponents of it to explain kind of the the history of racism and zoning just within that city and kind of Measure V is an extension of that, perhaps. Um, so, we, so that was something that I'm not sure we typically see on Bay Area ballots, that hyper-local anti-development housing measure getting such strong opposition. Um, but then more broadly, just in terms of potential solutions to, to housing, we saw everything from vacancy taxes appear to be heading towards passage in San Francisco and Berkeley, uh, rent control in Richmond. So I think, you know, if, if there's any broad brush, maybe it's voters saying, like, we're down to try anything. Yeah, I mean, I think I agree. And I think that just generally, I wouldn't, I don't know if I would mark this election as a turning point. It's sort of been like a slow Mm -hmm. turn over the last almost decade. And I think you see a lot of it did start at the state level with folks like Scott Wiener, you know, putting forth proposals that quite frankly got killed repeatedly and some of which still haven't made it through around largely this local control issue. You've seen the governor and the attorney general start to crack down more um, on this question of really going after cities who are not meeting, you know, their expectations, um, their requirements under law. And then I think it's trickled down. I mean, for lack of a better sort of, you know, shorthand, I think that the Yimbies are winning over the NIMBYs right now. It feels, um, and to me, what's striking about this is in this moment of extreme polarization nationally and so much sort of consternation in our political system, this feels like I don't know, just something where there's been an actual policy discussion and people seem to be actually sort of like engaging on it, not just. Yeah. Yeah. And I I just I find that really interesting. And I do think it's something to continue watching because it's one of the few areas where we've seen that type of shift. Yeah. And San Francisco, we should mention, you know, props D&E were these kind of competing ballot measures, both aimed at speeding up things like affordable housing development. Um, yeah. And- talk to me about those two, um, which I was I was confused, just not as a San Francisco voter about what was going on there. Yeah. So uh, Prop E was put on by the Board of Supervisors. I mean, both of them essentially contain provisions that would have said that if a state if the city doesn't approve um, a project, um, they would essentially like if the planning department doesn't approve it within a limited amount of time, it would get automatic approval under Prop D, which is on a knife's edge. It may go down, but it's unclear still. Uh, Prop E would not have given that automatic approval. um, And that one is failing. Um, I think big picture, Alexis, it's basically like it was progressives versus moderates, right? Like progressives have historically argued in a city like San Francisco that the market will not do this on its own, that you have to force developers to build affordable and you need to have really high sort of aggressive requirements around that. I think on the more moderate side, there's the sense that that makes it unaffordable and it just like kills all development and that you do need to see more market rate development as well as affordable um, because that will bring down the overall cost. Um, Mm. I do think we can't say whether like the, the moderate 
position has been embraced because of where Prop D is. But it seems pretty clear that voters kind of across the spectrum rejected um, the, the Prop E, which would have, I think, still given city staff and the Board of Supervisors a lot of power over rejecting projects. Yeah. Hey, Darwin, over in Oakland, uh, Measure U was one of, you know, up to $850 million in general obligation bonds to invest in in housing. Seems, as you've been warning, Alameda County is counting slowly, but, it, you know, it's got to pass with a two-thirds vote. It's at 70 percent right now. Um, what do you, tell us a little bit about that measure and what you think it says about the elector, electorate. Yeah, that's probably going to pass. It's hard to see that not passing. Um, yeah, it's, an, it's interesting. Uh, you know, the main uh, newspaper over here, the East Bay Times, um, had a, you know, editorial position against Measure U. And uh, some groups came out against it, but um, the outgoing mayor, Libby Schaaf, was for it. A lot of the council members, uh, you know, they put it on the ballot, so they're obviously for it. Um, Voters seem hungry for it. Uh, You know, Oakland's sort of in contrast to a lot of Bay Area cities, especially smaller ones in like San Francisco, in the sense that Oakland has produced a lot of market rate housing. The, The market's been pretty robust, pretty muscular here in terms of adding, uh, you know, market rate units. But like a lot of places, it's woefully behind on affordable housing production. So, you know, maybe voters are looking at this and seeing, well, measure use and infrastructure bond. And a lot of a lot of that money, I think it's like 300 million or more is going to go to affordable housing projects. And so, you know, voters seem to be embracing that uh, desire to build more affordable housing there. Yeah. I'm going to run through uh, some comments from listeners, a little block here. Uh, Bob writes in to say, maybe we'll cover this at some point, about Prop 30, which was a tax on people who made over $2 million a year to support different things. I always vote, and this election was once again very, very disappointing due to the media coverage. Newsom was against Prop 30, but why? Really, why? Was it because his potential financial backers did not want their taxes increased? Lyft was for it. How much did they stand to gain in the form of corporate welfare from it? Would it have made it possible for me to buy an EV and have access to charging? Lyft spent about $48 million on it. Why did they not spend that $48 million on subsidizing (laughs) EVs? It might have passed if they had spent less on it. Um, That might be true. Yeah, maybe. Uh, We have Marie uh, writing in to say, please shout out the resounding victory of library lovers in San Francisco. Proposition F for new library lovers. Shout out. <laughs> I mean, I'm one, I'm a library lover. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm always in the tank for librarians and libraries. I cannot help it. Um, uh, Marie uh, writes saying Proposition F renewed public library funding for 25 years, ensuring a quality library where all branches can stay open seven days a week, all year round. 80.3 percent approval. Thank you, friends of the San Francisco Public Library. And Emma Rin, big uh, library parcel tax passed there as well, Measure B. Yeah. Um, But not the City College parcel tax in San Francisco. That is uh, very resoundingly no. Yeah. I mean, that's a bigger conversation I think you've had. Yes. If you want to know more about the City College parcel tax, uh, we did a show on it uh, just, was it even this week? Last week, week, I think, yeah. Uh, Last week, yeah. Um, we are talking about Bay Area election results with Marisa Lagos, the politics correspondent KQED and co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown Show. Guy Marzarati, reporter and producer with KQED's California Politics and Government Desk. And Darwin Bongram, news editor at Oakland Side. We are, of course, taking your questions, too. 
I know at least some people want to know about some of these other cities, Fremont, Martinez, other places. What races are you watching most closely or what results have surprised you? You can give us a call, as always, at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are talking about the election, the local stuff, as well as a few state props here on Forum. We're joined by KQED's Marisa Lagos and Guy Marzarati and Oakland side's Darwin Bond Graham. Uh, let's talk about Prop 30. We had a comment uh, before the break. Marisa, tell, tell us a little bit more about Prop 30. I mean, you would think in, you know, a millionaire's tax, a multimillionaire's tax might be a popular thing, um, but it went down pretty hard, it seems like. Yeah. Oh, we're going to talk about Prop 30 again. I feel like we've talked about this a lot. I wish... <laughs> I recognize that, that comment. Yeah, that we got that same comment last night. Last night. Yeah. Um, I think that... I, I do think that the governor really sort of dealt the final blow to this, but I think there were some other challenges that probably would have popped up. Um, you know, the the listener mentioned Lyft. I do think that their support of this really gave opponents a very easy kind of boogeyman, right? It was like, oh, look at this evil tech corporation um, when, you know, truthfully, Prop 30 was put on not by Lyft even though they were the biggest funder, but it was put on by climate activists in Los Angeles. Um, but then, yeah, I think the the governor coming out and opposing it at a time where he's got some, you know, it seems like some coattails was definitely a big deal. Um, why he did that, uh, we've discussed in great length on our air. I think that there's a, a number of theories Um you know, one of which is just the easiest one, which is this idea of ballot box budgeting, which governors never love, right? It ties their hands. This would have created a special fund for uh, electric vehicle infrastructure and for some wildfire suppression, which I think the backers put on there because everyone loves firefighters, right? So, like, I think they thought that was going to help them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I personally also think beyond, you know, the sort of just the governor's strength and that issue um, of lift and, and, and the bigger questions, I think there's a lot of anxiety among the electorate, among the economy. And I think that that is a thing that a backer or, or opponents of Prop 30 kind of played very well, that this idea that like, is this really the right time to be doing this? Is this really, you know, the best idea? Um, because it's true in the past 
Californians have largely voted in favor of taxes on wealthy people. Um, We have a very progressive tax system that disproportionately does tax our our wealthiest residents. Um, And I do wonder if like the sort of combination of just broader economic anxiety, uncertainty about a potential recession, combined with a lot of the sort of anecdotal, not always sort of data backed up, but uh, conversations in the business community about businesses leaving California for lower tax states. Like, I think you kind of, it all combines to create uh, an environment that was not super friendly for this. Um, And I think it's hard to make the case to raise taxes in a year when the state's giving refunds. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, Let's, let's go back to local races. I, I, I like it. Andrew in Fremont, (laughs) you want to hear about Fremont. (laughs) Yes. Um, any reporting or analysis that's been done by any of your guests about the Fremont uh, races in, in this election? Yeah. Thank you for that question, Andrew. Also, just want to note, KQED's election guide is the only one that covers the whole Bay Area in this way. So, yes, go ahead, uh, <laughs> politics team. Yeah. Let me tell you, Andrew, there are thousands of races around the Bay Area. There are zero. I'm more excited to follow in the coming days than State Senate District 10. This is happening in Fremont, Hayward, Sunnyvale, Santa Clara. It's an extremely close race right now between two Democrats. Actually, the mayor, outgoing mayor of Fremont, Lily May, uh, and then Aisha Wahab, a Hayward City Councilwoman. May is up right now by a little more than a thousand votes in this race for state Senate. But the Associated Press says we have just about 36 percent of ballots counted is their estimate. So this is going to be one that I think could go on for days maybe even weeks as as results roll in. This was one of the most expensive campaigns in all of California. More than $5 million of outside money spent in the general election. It's your classic business-backed Democrat versus labor-backed Democrat proxy war. Um, and I, yeah, I'll, I will be locked into this one. Just for those who haven't been paying attention, which, which who is who? <laughs> so Lily May is uh, Mayor of Fremont. She's gotten a lot of support from you know, the businesses, uh, super PAC made up of money from uh, everything from California realtors to uh, builders to Lyft uh, or Uber. Wahab, on the other hand, has gotten mostly money from labor. The big supporters for her independent expenditures were the California Teachers Association uh, and SEIU. Mm. Oh, go ahead. Oh, just an aside on national results. It is looking like uh, that Georgia Senate race is going to progress to a runoff so oh, really? just so everybody knows you're not going to get any answer on any of this until <laughs> december probably <laughs> where have we heard that uh, before all right um let's uh, and apparently la isn't going to put out more results on their mayor's race until friday so everybody get, get wow. cozy up get, get comfortable Which, yeah people know there that is like it was basically at like 50 50 like it was yeah so i mean close. just like georgia yeah it's really fascinating how a lot of these races are breaking um, let's go to an entirely different type of race. Mimi and Marin, welcome. Yes, good morning. Um, well, something important happened in Marin last night. Uh, we had a major change election uh, result. The, uh, there were, uh, in, the, in an election for our water board, there were first-time ch- challenger candidates um, and a grassroots campaign that uh, effectively drove out three incumbents. Um, and the uh, new first-time candidates won uh, roughly 60% or more of uh, the vote. Um, so uh, with a five-member board, this is definitely a change in direction. And it's a result of the fact that Marin almost ran out of water this year. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, the electorate is uh, aware and understands that we need a new water board that's going to uh, engage in some serious long-term planning. Hey, Mimi, what, yeah, what does this represent for you? Like, what is new, new members of this board? What do you think it's actually going to change in Marin's sort of water policy? Well, what the candidates are saying is that the incumbents have spent millions of dollars uh, on consultant studies as to what to do about our water problem and haven't acted. And um, you have new people coming in who have the, the skills and the commitment to um, making some hard decisions. Hmm. All right. um, thank you so much uh, for that one, Mimi. Um, Guy, do you want to shout out any other of these kind of smaller races where maybe something significant happened? Well, I know um, one that Marisa just can't wait to talk <laughs> about is happening over on the west side of SF. Uh, it's not a candidate race, but I, but I've, I was interested as a San Franciscan to watch the results in those uh, dueling measures on whether to keep uh, JFK Drive car in free, Golden Gate right. Park and the Great Highway car free um, and resoundingly in uh, the case of reopening them to cars uh, that is losing. Um, and it does look like car free drive has one. Uh, so you, you, you didn't really, I don't know if you really needed Prop J with <laughs> with Prop I losing, but it was it's interesting. The Chronicle has a really great uh, elections result page with maps where you can see kind of how people voted uh, geographically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think just really fascinating to see how in large part, I mean, the, the vote against reopening it to cars, especially on the sort of center and east side of the city, was just very strongly no. So interesting. I mean, this one, you know, this is just my own circles, I think. But I think I saw more about this than any single local election. And I saw more people, you know, celebrating. You, and, you're a bicyclist, right? I'm a yeah, Exactly. Yeah, that's why. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think, though, that, I mean, what was interesting was I do think that the folks who wanted to reopen it, who, if you look at this map, are largely, especially in the Richmond district, which kind of makes sense because that, you know, those are thoroughfares that uh, they are not open to them to drive uh, and get out of the city. Um, it, it was one of those cases where I think the people who wanted to reopen it were very passionate about it, um, but I just don't think had the same numbers as, as the rest of the city. And quite frankly, folks outside of the city uh, who we we heard uh, in one of our election events, Ballots and Brews, uh, somebody who's like, I'm in Daly City and I want it reopened, but I can't vote. And we're like, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's fascinating. And I think it does speak again, like this is one of those ones that cut across sort of like traditional progressive, uh, you know, modern it whatever like mm-hmm. it was pretty much embraced at city hall to keep them car free um and i think what you saw was yeah i mean sort of neighbors i mean it's a, it's a different type of nimbyism in a way right but it's definitely something that it affects of course people who live right there yeah. more although yeah. interestingly the sunset district was far more mixed in, in its results mm. on both hey darwin um over in Oakland, do you have you know one of the measures that you think hasn't gotten uh, as much attention that you think has, might have some important uh, I- I effects? Yeah, absolutely. There, there, I mean, there were a bunch of there were ten measures on the ballot this year, and a, a lot of them do actually really significant things uh, to the structure of government here. I mean, a, a big one that looks at the past is Measure T. It's a it reforms the city's business tax system. So currently. You know, like uh, grocery stores, no matter how big they are, they all pay the same rate. So if you're like a little corner shop, you're paying the same business tax rate as like, you know, Safeway 
or some some big chain grocery store um, that changes it so that the big chains with uh, higher gross receipts you know are going to pay a bit higher rates that's going to raise like maybe 20 million extra for the city a year 20 million extra for Oakland is a that's that's a pretty big deal actually for a you know city that has a pretty strapped budget um, measure X that you know that's going to reform uh, some some uh, aspects of government here including putting term limits on city council members. Um, so, we, you know, we've had famously council members who've been on, you know, in the past, who've been on the council for, you know, decades at a time. In fact, uh, Ignacio de la Fuente, who just ran for mayor, I think he was on council from like the early 1990s through about 2011 or 2012. Wow. Um, so, you know, if that passes, that'd be a, that'd be a pretty big change for Oakland government. Um, I and mean, the last one I'll shout out is uh, Measure H, that's a Oakland Unified School District measure. Again, it's going to raise millions of dollars a year for these uh, education programs that a lot of researchers say have been really successful at boosting achievement, especially for black and brown students in Oakland Unified. Wow. Thank you for that, Darwin. Um, we've got uh, caller Bill in Berkeley who wants to talk about a race there. Yes, hi. Um, thanks for taking the call. There was a very very, very contentious race in the first district of Berkeley. Uh, the incumbent, Rashi, um, was running and was under a lot of fire because of the BART development that's happening at the North Berkeley BART. Mm. Uh, and there was a lot of back and forth of whether it was going to be allowed to be seven stories or 12 stories or 20 stories um, high development in, a, in an area that's mostly like single-family one-story um, houses, and so she was running against uh, uh, Elisa Milken. Uh, I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly, but um, about 2,000 votes overall, and, and the incumbent, Rashi, uh, survived um, by about 55 votes on the second ballot. Um, there were three um, people, and like so close that if people had like not like single voted for the third person who was knocked out. Um, we may have a different um, person here. And is that, um, Darwin, I'm assuming Berkeley's on the same Alameda County schedule as Oakland, right? So there may be some more votes to come in there or no? Yeah. Yeah. The registrar of voters, the County office here handles the elections right, right. for all the cities. And um, yeah, I mean, they're just, it's, it's quite a bit different than um, some other places, but with mail-in ballots, it just takes a really long time here. And then and Berkeley also has ranked choice voting, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really interesting race. I mean, one of the things that um, I actually love about doing the show is you get to hear all these things, not just your city, not just even your region of the Bay, but that there's so many um, people uh, running and so many people involved in our civic processes all over the place. Um we have uh, one other uh, big question here. Joshua writes, um, any analysis on the Alameda Board, County Board of Supervisors District 3 race? The potential landslide win for Lena seems interesting. What's this mean for the dynamics of the Board of Supervisors? And Guy, maybe can I throw this one to you? Or Yeah, you know, I haven't really been following the Alameda uh, Board that closely, um, so I don't think I could yeah. give you too much uh, info on that. Darwin, I don't know if you can bail me out here. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I can, I can jump in. Um, Lena Tan is from the city of Alameda, uh, sort of her power base there. Rebecca Kaplan is from Oakland, long, long-time city, at-large city council member here. Um, 
Kaplan has always easily won re-election to her at-large seat, but she's run for mayor before and she's lost. And so I think there was some question about whether she could get outside of Oakland and build a winning coalition, um, especially uh, in Alameda and then parts of the South County from, you know, like Fremont to Hayward to, um, you know, out to Livermore and stuff. The results right now, uh, it looks like Lena Tam uh, is, is winning. I don't know if it's a landslide, but it is a, there's a pretty big separation, about 55% or 45% right now. Um, the Part of the background here is that there's been a lot of tension between the city of Oakland and Alameda County for many years. The city of Oakland feels like it has really big problems that the county should be taking the lead on. These include public health issues like homelessness. Uh, the county feels like the city of Oakland um, is, is a bit in disarray and needs to get its shop in order uh, before it comes in and spends a lot more money on stuff. Um, Kaplan was seen as someone who could potentially change that dynamic if she were to be elected uh, to the board. Um, she was backed significantly by labor groups uh, and others. Tam had a bit more like business support. I think um, some uh, uh, real estate uh, political action committees uh, put some money into this race to support her to oppose Rebecca Kaplan, partly because Kaplan is seen as like an ally of like tenants. And um, so, you know, if Tam if Tam wins, it'll probably be an upset for a lot of Oakland residents. Uh, if Kaplan wins, it'll be an upset for city of Alameda residents. Yeah. And again, that's another one of those that we may be waiting some some days to figure out. Absolutely. Um, Jennifer in San Francisco wants to uh, talk a little bit about the JFK Great Highway prop, uh, measures. Welcome, Jennifer. Hi, thank you. This is Jennifer. So I just wanted to make a quick comment. I noticed that when you were talking about it, it was related to whether or not people actually wanted uh, the Great Highway and JFK open or not. That actually, I don't think, fully looks at the whole picture because a lot of people use the SF Chronicle voter guide when they're looking at analysis. I know I do. There's a few that I look at. That's one of them. I absolutely wanted the Great Highway open as well as JFK, but the SF Chronicle had a really wonderful analysis that made it more about, um, they were talking about a poison pill in it and why even if you wanted those things, you needed to um, have, you should vote no because of the debacle with the environmental concerns around the um, the Ocean Beach uh, Pollution Center over there. And um, it basically said it was it was written very poorly and would end up costing us a ton of money. So there's a lot of people that I bet voted like myself that wanted those things open, read that and said, ah, OK, I guess this isn't it. Huh. Yeah, there might, uh, yeah, certainly. I mean, uh, Marisa, with our last uh, few seconds here, do you want to talk about some of the complexities of uh, th- those measures? Yeah, I mean, I think voters always make different considerations. Um, this our caller sounds like a very sort of a, a voter who does her homework very thoroughly. My guess would be high information. That voter, is right? not how most people voted. And let's be clear, this question, especially uh, the Great Highway, I would put a little separately. Um, but of JFK being closed or open to cars has been debated in San Francisco for years uh, very hotly. So I do think that that's likely what most voters actually were looking at. But, you know, certainly there's always going to be nuances in these, you know, complicated policy questions and i'm sure that there are other people like our caller who uh did their homework yeah we have been talking about bay area election results obviously election yesterday we've been joined by darwin bondgram news editor at oakland side knows everything as you have heard about oakland thank you darwin thanks much 
Also been joined by Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent at KQED and co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown. Thank you, Marisa. Yeah. And Guy Marzarati, reporter and producer with KQED's California Politics and Government Desk. Thank you, Guy. Thanks, Alexis. If you need more, go to kqed.org slash elections for more election coverage and developing results. And of course, we have another hour coming up with Rachel Myro. Keep talking about the election state stuff. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.